Good morning. My name is Monica, and this morning our scripture reading is from the book of Proverbs. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading selected verses from chapter 19 in the New International Version. Verse 1. Better the poor whose walk is blameless than a fool whose lips are perverse. Verse 3. A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. Verse 10, it is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury. How much worse for a slave to rule over princes. Verse 13, a foolish child is a father's ruin, and a quarrelsome wife is like the constant dripping of a leaky roof. Verse 29, Penalties are prepared for mockers and beatings for the backs of fools. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I want to just, before we begin, make a comment about free wheelchair mission. Um, I had the privilege of going on a trip a few years ago, and I got to feel and experience something that I want to share with you. Uh, One of the more tragic aspects of not having mobility in some of these countries and cities around the world um, is that uh, the way the um, assumptions and the cultural worldview works is if you are somebody that doesn't have mobility, people often see you as somebody who is cursed, somebody uh, who just has a shadow sort of on their life. And we see this in Scripture too. There is a saying that apply to Jesus as well, that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so when they saw Jesus hanging on the cross, they saw him as somebody who deserved that, somebody who should die that way because they're cursed. They saw that as sort of logical. And then um, in these uh, scenes, when we showed up with wheelchairs and we were able to sort of intervene in that worldview or narrative, we lift them up literally off the ground and put them in the chair, then the narrative about that person begins to change and people begin to believe, oh, if these people who are an extension of God himself come and they intervene in this invisible, insignificant person's life, then maybe they're not cursed. Maybe they don't deserve to be treated badly. Maybe they should be Uh, somebody with dignity who has worth. And the same thing happened with Jesus when God intervened and lifted Jesus off the cross and we began to see him glorified. And so I think it's a real powerful way to uh, impact people, not just in their practical life, but uh, in the way they really feel about how the world and about how God is uh, towards them. So... uh, Definitely be be invested in this ministry, participate uh, as much as you can. But if you can go on a trip, I really encourage that. It's going to leave an impact in your life that's going to impact everything else. So there's my um, own thoughts about that. So today we are continuing in the book of Proverbs in a series called Life Pro Tip. And we are asking the question today, what is a fool out of Proverbs 19? The main takeaway uh, from today's uh, verses that Monica read for us is that, one, fools exist. I know we're Americans. We live in a very civilized, 
advanced society, so we think that maybe there's sort of a less, like the stats are going down on this. Uh, I'm here to uh, disagree with that and let you know there are many, many <clears throat> fools among us. Uh, if you don't know one, you might be the one. <laughs> Secondly, uh, to that point, it could be you. It's probably me. It's probably any one of us. I'm not definitively saying that we are fools, but I'm saying the line between not fool and fool is really, really thin. It doesn't take much, just half a step to your left or right, and you can be a fool. And so let's answer this question. What is a fool? Uh, diving right into verse 1. This verse sets the tone for the entire theme and the chapter, which is about fools. It says this, Better the poor whose walk is blameless than a fool whose lips are perverse. This word perverse is the Hebrew word which means crooked or twisted. Uh, I had this amazing experience these last uh, couple of days. Uh, got up onto uh, Navajo Peak uh, out in uh, Clay Elam land. And uh, as we uh, traversed upwards, uh, we passed the tree line, but there were still these trees that somehow had figured out how to survive the harsher elements up there. There's just sort of uh, unforgiving wind up there, right? Constant. But these trees had adopted uh, adapted to survive in such harsh climates by twisting itself. It's not like just one twist in the middle, but starting all the way from the bottom, all the way to the top, and every branch that shot out was twisted. And that twist gives it strength. It allows it to survive in those harsh climates. But there's nothing you can do to untwist this tree. It's like twisted from birth. And it's, it's a necessary adaptation to survive in harsher climates. And that's this word, this idea that somehow people can be twisted from birth. Like the world is harsh, and we're trying to survive in this world, so there's a way we've adapted to survive, such that the way we view the world is twisted and the way we explain the world is twisted. So everything that's going out from us, it's perverse, it's crooked, it's twisted. It's not quite an accurate description of reality. And everything that's coming at us, it starts out as true, but by the time it gets to our years, by the time our life story and our human nature and our survival mechanism has had its way with it, it comes in all twisted. And so we don't perceive reality as we should, and we cannot explain reality as we should. Everything about us, the brain itself, the tools that we have, the mechanisms by which we understand how life works is twisted. And it's a necessary for us, uh, an adaptation. And what this means is this, that you can be as introspective and as self-critical and as self-reflective as anyone else. But you by yourself cannot untwist reality. Everything that's coming in you has to get twisted before it, it's understandable to you. 
And every time you try to explain something, there's a kind of perversion in it. It's not quite as true as you think. And so using those same tools and mechanisms, you're trying to understand yourself. And you can be diligent, you can be sincere, you can be really sort of at it, and yet you will still not understand yourself. You will still be, as verse 1 says, perverse. So what you need is something from outside of you altogether in order for you to get an accurate reflection of who you are, what you are, and how the world really works. All of the effort you put into it cannot add up to what you need. And so verse 1, this way of understanding how we are, really begins to uh, shed light on how to understand the following verses. So we jump to verse 3. Verse 3 says, A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. And this is really inviting us to a challenge. And it's asking the question, do you really, really want to show down with the truth? Do you really want to walk down that road of playing the blame game? If you ever say to God, God, why is my life like this? If you are a good God, how can these things have happened to me? And God says, we could talk about that, but let's not. God, I demand to know because as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can perceive and understand, I am innocent. I do not deserve what's happening. This should not have happened to me. And then God says, I didn't want to have to do this, but okay. And he starts rolling up his sleeves and he says, let's go. Let's look at your life. Let's look at all of your thoughts and look at all of the decisions you've made. Let's examine all the motives of your heart. Let's do this. And right away you begin to understand, if God were to do this, that it's always a two-way street, that you are never, ever blameless. You're always somehow a part of the equation. Your folly shows up in your life at every turn. Your immaturity shows up. Your deficiencies, your lack of character, something that falls short of the full glory of God, shows up at every turn in your life. And yet, you are so self-deceived because of the way that we are perverted. Just like those trees. We can't understand it. So in our ignorance, in our folly, we shake our fist at God and say, why? Now, I'm not saying we don't have legitimate moments when things aren't painful and confusing, just like we sang. The truth is hard to get. God is hard to get. But the reality is, more than meets the eye. <clears throat> I certainly relate to verse 3. And I wrote down some adjectives that relate to this theme and to me. The first one is blame. I have an incredibly powerful need to blame people. And if you want to get at the core of it, it's really a displacement of responsibility. I don't know what it is about human beings. We hate responsibility. 
But our irresponsibility keeps us from understanding that we hate responsibility. We refuse to take responsibility for our hatred of responsibility. We so badly want things to be other people's fault. We play the blame game all day long. In our most sincere attempt at getting at the truth, the best we have to offer is it's her fault. It's his fault. They did it. Who is this they? A second adjective that came to my mind is ungrateful. You can be the kindest person to me up to 99, but if that hundredth point is not perfect, ah, then I'm ungrateful. I forget all the good. And I rage in my heart against God. The third adjective I thought of is the word resentful. I hold on to bitterness. Resentment becomes my best friend. I use it to nurse me. I use it to soothe me. I use it to justify my continued perversion. And really what we're talking about, this idea, is uh, this idea of self-deception. That as hard as we try, because of the way we are twisted from birth, the way we've had to adapt to survive in this harsh world, at our core, we are self-deceived. We cannot know the truth about ourselves as we ought to. Verse 3, I believe, applies to all of us. Uh, And then there's verse 10, uh, describing another aspect of what it's like um, to be a fool. It is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury How much worse for a slave to rule over princes? This verse is getting at the idea of torture. The torture that follows when people are in position who do not fit the position. How many of you here have ever had a job? Keep your hands up. How many of you have ever had somebody above you who should not have been above you? It's torture. And that's what this verse is saying. How much worse for a slave to rule over princes? I know we don't relate to the word slave or princes or it hits us kind of funny. But in, uh, in the intended audience, this is how they heard it. They were just talking about foolish managers, foolish leaders, people occupying positions, and the pain that follows for the people under this person. And then we have verse 13. A foolish child is a father's ruin, and a quarrelsome wife is like the constant dripping of a leaky roof. And this, uh, I'm glad Monica, a woman, a wife, read this verse. It's tricky. It's kind of a funny verse, and it sounds like misogynistic. You know, like it's the patriarch's viewpoint. Uh, But the essence of the verse isn't that specific. What it's saying is this. When you are coupled to a fool, You have no peace. So how many of you are parents? Okay. Uh, How many of you, keep your hands up, parents. How many of you, keep your hands up if you went to the principal's office ever? (laughs) You know, if you're a parent and you have a child 
that's always being sent to the principal's office. At some point, you start flinching when you just get a phone call. Because what are you going to do? What is a parent to do if your child is a troublemaker or troubled or, you know, getting into uh, just messes all the time? What are you going to do? Abandon them? You're going to disown them? No, you're coupled to your child all the days of your life. Even after they've grown up, even, even if they're married and they have their own kids, you still worry about them because they're still your child. And so you understand the emotion that the verse uh, 13 is trying to convey. A foolish child is a father's ruin. Right? Or maybe it's your spouse. Maybe your spouse is embarrassing to you. Maybe your spouse has unresolved issues and you're always having to rescue them from social situations or whatnot. Or maybe you just suggest they stay home this time again. But what is life like for you if you have to manage a fool or you're coupled to a fool and you can't uncouple? That's what verse 13 is describing. Now, verse 29, at first, it seems a little bit violent and harsh, and it feels a little bit like it's not part of our first world. Uh, but I think that's not what it's really getting at. Verse 29 says, Penalties are prepared for mockers and beatings for the backs of fools. Verse 29 is describing what happens when wisdom begins to descend on the fool. It's the necessary experience for a fool when wisdom enters the room. So if a child is being foolish and they're doing dangerous, thing, dangerous things or hurtful things and then suddenly an adult shows up in the room, what happens? It feels a little bit like a clash, right? Consequences start showing up. Wisdom and foolishness cannot coexist. And so we have this penalties are prepared for mockers, beatings for the backs of fools, but actually this is a sign of love. This is a sign of hope entering the room. This is the, what wisdom looks like when wisdom begins to descend on the fool. So this is a good thing that's happening. And it opens up the rest of the other verses that I want us to look at. Uh, reading verse 8 and 20 together, it says this, The one who gets wisdom loves life. The one who cherishes understanding will soon prosper. So the fool is being transformed. Verse 20, Listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end, you will be counted among the wise. Now, this is my uh, personal view based on observation of my own uh, growth pathway, observation based on all the people that I've uh, interacted with over the years. And uh, what, I know this, what I know to be true in Scripture is this, that you gather all of the resources that you have available to you, and you stack it up into a pile, and all of that will not be greater than the voice or the voices of other human beings who are wise in your life. Because if you are just dependent on books or articles you read, information you have, you are still curating your own feedback. And so if you believe that you don't need to talk to other people, that you don't need other human voices 
in your life because you have all these other ways you can grow, other uh, data points and information available to you, you're gravely mistaken. Here is what a fool is. I'm going to define what a fool is for us. A fool is one who does not have wise voices in their life. And what that means is that by default, you and I, from birth, are twisted. Because we're all trying to survive in this world. And we've developed these self-defense mechanisms that pervert everything that's coming in. And it's going to pervert everything that's going out. Verse 1 is true. Our lips are crooked. Our perception, our communication, it's all crooked. And what I believe the scripture is saying is the only thing that can begin to untwist you so that you can begin to accurately perceive and explain and experience reality is when you heed the advice and the discipline that comes through other wise people. A little cultural context here. We live in a society right now where we, be, we believe we don't need authority. We believe in a culture where we get to self-curate whatever is coming at us. If you want a romantic relationship with someone, you don't have to actually go interact with anybody. You can swipe left or right. I've actually never seen one of these apps in action because whoever is using it is doing it sort of incognito. But I, I know it's out there. You know, and I've, I've read articles about these things that you just look at somebody's profile and then you swipe right, and if they swipe right too on you, then you're a, it's a match. Or if somebody sends you a text message and you don't like it, you can ghost them. It used to be that people had to come up to you and ask you a question and see the reaction on your face, and now you don't have to reply to them for days or weeks on end if you don't want to. We are now forced to interact with accurate reflections in our culture today. We get to decide what we want to hear. We get to keep supporting, proof texting, our perverted view of ourselves and how the world works. And if this is your approach to life, then I believe you are a fool because you've always been a fool and you get to just stay a fool. You've placed yourself inside our culture's echo chamber. I believe the Bible's remedy is this. A human being who is wise, who is willing to walk with you. A human being who is wise, who is willing to look you in the eyes. A human being who's wise, who's willing to be patient with you. A human being who's wise, who is kind, who is truthful, who is timely, who is gracious, who is merciful, and who over time proves themselves to be masterful. If you don't invite, if you do not have wisdom, through other people, I believe you don't have wisdom at all because no matter how wise the information is, as long as you get to choose your data points, it's going to come in twisted by the time it gets to you. Only another human being 
can insist that what you're perceiving is not as true as you think it is. You need another rational, conscious being who's filled with the Spirit of God, who loves you with the love of Christ, looking at you in the eyes and saying, I will not leave you. I will speak to you. I will sit here with you. We shall journey together. This is the remedy for the fool. I was asking myself, uh, what is one image that describes our culture today that's so different than what Scripture offers? This is a magic mirror, and it reflects back to you nothing of value. It's just darkness. And that's what our culture says is true. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? You are! You're the best. Look how many likes you have. Look how many right swipes you have. Oh, those other people, those annoying people who are contradicting you, ghost them, ignore them. Don't hang out with them. Our culture allows us to opt in or opt out. You proof text whatever image of yourself you want, whatever philosophy is most convenient to you. No contradiction, no pushback, no disagreement, no healthy conflict. Magic mirror. That's why scripture says the word of God is like a what? A mirror. Who holds the mirror up to you, though? It's other people. Because of the way we are crooked, we are not going to reach for that mirror on our own. I want to talk about these powerful words that are often held in tension. Scripture talks about this idea of truth in love. What the Bible says about truth is so different than what the world understands truth to be. The Bible says that if something is true, the truer it is, the more loving it also is. You never, ever, ever have to choose between truth and love. If I were to put up one of my world-famous charts here, you would see an up and to the right graph that as truth increases, love also increases. Or as love increases, truth increases. That if something is truthful, but it's not loving, it's not truthful yet. It's not truthful enough. It's just a partial truth. The whole truth, the truth that's circumspectful, the truth that's truth indeed, will be loving. And if something is loving, if it's really actually loving, it's not going to enable somebody. It's not going to just give false hope. It's not going to just be a nice, warm, comfortable hug. It could be that, but it won't be just that. Because when something is truly loving, it's going to be full of truth. And the Bible always talks about grace and truth together as well, that Jesus himself, as the perfect and whole, fully representative uh, uh, countenance of God is full of grace and truth. Meaning that if something is truly gracious, it's going to also be filled with truth. And if something is truly truthful, it's also going to be filled with love. And this is the kind of wisdom we need 
Wisdom that is truth in love. Wisdom that is full of grace and truth. And the question is, where do you get this? Where in your life, where in the world do you get this? We've already established, I hope, that you don't get it through your own self-seeking. That your introspection, as, as sincere as your desire is, is insufficient. You don't get to slam the gavel on yourself. So that's out. What about your workplace? Will your workplace really give you truth and love, grace and truth? Where do you get this? What about your neighbors? All I get from my neighbor next door is complaints about my campfires. They don't give me truth in love. It didn't feel very in love when they called the fire department on me for the second time. It didn't feel full of grace and truth. Where do you get it? And so I've thought about this. I've asked myself, where have I received consistently a concentration of truth and love, grace and truth? And the place that I get it more than anywhere else is the church, is the local church. There's a kind of environment and a trajectory, an overall arc to what the church is and why it exists that lends itself to experiencing truth and love and grace and truth. I was thinking about what I've learned here at our church over these years. And I want to just uh, list out a few of the things that I've learned. Number one thing, the number one thing that I've learned uh, in our church over these years is the power and the necessity of commitment. I realized that, you know, because I had just done short-term things, I never really got the full feedback loop that's so necessary to growth. I never had a group of people commit to me and me commit to a group of people through enough uh, of a season in life to really feel the reflective mirror held, being held up to me. But here, I received it in abundance from people who committed themselves to me. I cannot think of another place that would do this in a way that is truth and love and in a way that is grace and truth. I think in other churches, because I would just start something, it would be an exercise of my gifts, and then I would leave. And then I never knew what happened. It all seemed to work out great. I learned that from this church. The second thing that I learned from this church is the idea of love. I remember the exact meeting, the exact day, the exact table. I remember how I felt. I remember the facial expression of the person who first became a conduit, the conduit of God's word to me about how, Peter, yes, you're gifted, whatever. It's all good, but all of it would mean nothing if you don't actually love the church. All of that truth that's not in love is not actually helpful. All of that truth that is not coupled with grace is not that helpful. And this person said, I need to feel love from you. And I remember feeling totally defensive. 
I remember it came in. It was, the words were coming at me. And then as, as, it, as it was approaching me, it started twisting. And by the time it landed in my brain, it was their fault. That's how it works. And then I processed it. I reflected on it. I read books on it. And then I tried to communicate about it. But it got twisted on the way out. And by the time it got to them, it was their fault. They were the unloving ones. You see how that works? But I understand that I needed to grow in love. A third thing that I learned is the idea of trusting. That you don't trust God in a vacuum. Anybody can do that. You know, maybe James would say even demons do that. But it's trusting God through trusting people. That's really hard. Because people are not trustworthy. But God is saying there's a God, a sovereign, loving God behind those people. And so through having to trust unreliable people, you learn what it means to trust God. Now that's hard especially for me, but I've been learning about that through this church. Another one that I've been learning is the importance of character. You know, I've always talked about character, chemistry, and competence. And in theory, I believed in character. But in reality, I was really believing in competence. But I understand more than ever that character is of utmost importance. And then lastly, in this last season, I've been learning about the idea of power and and the gift of roles that we get to offer each other. Now, how? It is the church through which we grow, but more specifically, how through the church did I grow? And as I thought about this, I landed on this, that wisdom The wisdom that I've experienced over these years in this church primarily came through people that were older than me. I'm not saying that younger people don't have value to add. I'm just saying as I look back and I reflect on all the ways that loving people contradicted me and caused me to become straighter than I had been, these people tended to be older than me. Now, Just because you're older doesn't mean you are wise. You can grow old and not grow wise. Absolutely. But if you are wise, chances are you are older. Chances are you've seen a few things. You've been through a few things. You have some perspective that those who are less further along than you on the journey have not seen yet. And so I love the way our church is multi-generational. In my church planning days, I never experienced multiple generations. I was the oldest one in the room. Can you believe that? I was supposed to be the mechanism for wisdom, truth and love, grace and truth. And so I encourage you, if you are here today in this church as part of this church, all you have to do is raise your hand and say, I want wisdom. I, I, I would like some truth and love, some grace and truth. And you will not be rejected. Just because you come to church doesn't mean you're going to get it. You have to commit to it. You have to sort of enter into the steel cage that is the church and couple yourself to people 
through whose expense you will grow. Uh, verse 7, I think, uh, underscores what I just said. The poor are shunned by all their relatives. How much more do their friends avoid them? Though the poor pursue them with pleading, they are nowhere to be found. There's a kind of welcome here at the church that you will not find anywhere else. Anywhere else, if you're a fool, they don't want you. They run from you. That's what verse 7 is saying. But the church will welcome you. The church is the place where you can boldly approach the throne of God's grace. The church is the place where you will be accepted first before they demand you change. The church is the place where grace will abound, where sin abounds. And as far as I know, the church is the only place that is that way. And it turns out that if you find yourself seeking wisdom, what you will first learn is that wisdom has been seeking you first. And the seeking of wisdom is what actually allowed you to even seek wisdom in the first place. And so we conclude with this uh, thought from 1 Corinthians. These are great verses. The whole chapter is filled with verses like this. Uh, verse uh, 21 says this, For since the wisdom of the for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That when we were thinking we were wise, we were unable to comprehend actual wisdom because we twisted it, we perverted it. And so verse 27 says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And here Paul is talking about Jesus Christ himself. That God condescended himself to become a fool so that he can communicate and connect with fools. He's meeting us where we are at in the incarnation of the fleshly form of God himself in the person of Christ. That God who is strong became weak. God who is wise became a fool to save the fool. I want to end uh, with a prayer that is uh, lyrics to another song. Um, it's a song is called God's Own Fool, a song by Michael Card. I'm going to read the lyrics for us, and this will be our prayer today. It seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. For even his family said he was mad, and the priest said a demon's to blame. But God in the form of this angry young man could not have seemed perfectly sane. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show that we were wrong. And so now we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. So come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream. And you'll have the faith his first followers had, and you will feel the weight of the beam. So surrender the hunger to say you must know. Have the courage to say I believe. For the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. 
So we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. What all this means is that the madness of God, the weakness of God, the foolishness of God is love for us, is power to us, is wisdom for us, is Christ unto us. Amen.